I, like most people, have my own thoughts about who the best quarterbacks in the Pac-12 are going into 2022, a season that begins this week, by the way. Isn't that exciting? But who are the most important quarterbacks going into this season? Let's go. Locked on Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pack 12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin, D1 play-by-play broadcaster. Thanks for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Conference of Champions, however long it exists. Like, comment, subscribe wherever you're listening to or watching the show. Big thank you to everybody out there who's done so already. Five-star views on Apple Podcasts, comments over there. Appreciate all of that as well. So these are two different categories I alluded to in the cold open there. The best quarterbacks and the most important quarterbacks. What am I talking about here? The quarterbacks who could make leaps this year from what they did a season ago, or maybe to what their potential uh, could be, that would most impact the conference in 2022. I was going to do a list of the best quarterbacks, but then I thought, you know, it, it's kind of up for a debate after the top three. I think it's a little bit like Moneyball. It's like, Here's Caleb Williams, Cam Rising, and DTR, and much like in Moneyball. Then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's everybody else. It's not that it's not that huge of a gap. But the number four slot is like, it could go to a number of people. But there are five quarterbacks who I think are the most important as it pertains, not just to their teams, but how the, the conference's season writ large will play out because of the impact it will have on their specific teams. Number one is the guy who we were talking about last week here on the show, who Washington named their starting quarterback. That's Indiana transfer Michael Penix Jr. Now, a season ago for Washington, their defense was not a major issue. We'll see if their defense coordinator is going to be able to you know, stay at the same levels they were a year ago. But Washington has had good defenses year in and year out for uh, some time now. But the quarterback play was a major issue. Now, coaching was a part of that. If you have, in theory, a better coach, which I don't think the bar is very high for Washington on the offensive side of the ball, and I think Kalen DeBoer, though a small sample size as a head coach and even as a Power 5 OC, has had a successful track record to this point, has a really good chance of being better for the Huskies in that sense. And so it begs the question, What can DeBoer and Penix do at Washington compared to what they did for the season they had together in 2019 at Indiana? Because that was by far, I mean by way far, which I'll tell you about here uh, in just a sec, Michael Penix's best year. If he is able to get back to that level, my perception of Washington changes. Many of you know. I'm not very high in the Huskies this year. I think their win range is in the 4-8 and to 6-6, and and I think they're going to be at the low end of that mostly because they lose a coin flip game to Cal. Maybe they win that game. I wouldn't be very surprised. But I think they're a lot closer to 6-6, six and six. could maybe go 7-5, and five, but I think 6-6 six and six w- would be where they're at because of how their schedule plays out if Michael Penix is able to stay healthy. That's a major if. But 
That reunited combo of Michael Penix and Kalen DeBoer produced some pretty darn good results at Indiana with him as the OC in 2019. Not as the head coach, but as the OC. And yes, there's a difference, but DeBoer will be his play caller. That season, his completion percentage, Michael Penix, was just under 69%, best of his career, 8.7 yards per attempt. And in the other years he's played quarterback at the Power 5 level, he hasn't had more than 7.5 yards per attempt. So more chances down the field, more confidence throwing the ball. He's not a guy with a huge arm, but that's a pretty significant gap, right? All the other years were 7.5 or below. And that year with DeBoer as the OC, it was 8.7. He had 10 touchdowns to four interceptions in 2019 at Indiana in what was a winning season for the Hoosiers. The big question there about Michael Penix is not just can he get back to that level, but as I mentioned on the show, can he stay healthy? Hasn't played a full season yet. Even in 2020, Indiana played, I believe, eight games. He was available for six of them. If you tell me he's available for 12 games, I think there's a solid chance Washington gets to 6-6 six and six or around that mark. But if he's going to be in and out of the lineup, having quarterbacks come and go or having to change quarterbacks midseason historically does not go particularly well for college football teams. So he hasn't done it yet, but if he can stay healthy for even just like 10 games would be good. If you could get him for 10, I think that would be a pretty solid, right? And and have him, you know, miss a game but come back, right? Not have 10 games and have him go out for the rest of the year. But if he were to miss just one or two games and, you know, blowing out Kent State and Portland State in those first two weeks, I think is would be a huge advantage for Washington because then they could rest him and he wouldn't risk getting an injury, which has happened in all the four years that he has played college football. I think that could be important, but... Still got to see it. But if he is able to take a leap back towards that 2019 year, that could be really, really important for Washington. Because as Husky fans know, the quarterback play last year and the offense were at large was way below where it needed to be. Hence the four and eight season because the defense was just fine. The offense was pretty darn bad. Number two on this list. These are in order, by the way. These, this is not a random five. This is, you know, which guys are uh, which guys potential leaps could define their team's season the most. Number two is Tanner McKee at Stanford. Now, a year ago, he completed 65% of his passes. That's great. But he had 15 touchdowns to seven interceptions and statistically was not blowing you away with with his passing yards per game. A little bit of that is philosophically based because David Shaw loves to run the football. But if Stanford struggles to run the football again, they're going to be more reliant on his right arm, and he has got to do better than 15-7 to in the touchdown-interception ratio. And a part of that is Stanford's got to be able to score more points. So he is getting a lot of respect. I mean a lot, a lot more than uh, some people would uh, potentially imagine. In the NFL draft scouting department, because he's a big guy and he's got a big arm, very pro style, right? Not quite as mobile as Davis Mills, who's not, you know, a super mobile guy, but is also getting a real chance to start as the Texans' potential franchise quarterback. And I can't say I saw that one coming after after his career at Stanford. If he is able to take a leap forward, that could go a long way in helping the Stanford offense at least be closer to what it was. He doesn't need to be Andrew Luck, but if he could be closer to Kevin Hogan in terms of the production and the consistency, then that would be a really, really big help for the Cardinal offense this year. I think if you get to the point where you're relying on him to carry your offense, you may be asking too much. 
But if you're expecting him to be better than last year, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. You have an offseason to watch film, to you know hit the weight room, to practice with your teammates, talk to coaches. Right? I mean, that, that's what offseasons are for. They're for getting better. And if McKee can make that leap, then I, I'd feel much more confident about my pick for Stanford to be a little bit of a rebound team this year and, and get to six and six. But if you told me it was the same Tanner McKee as last year and, uh, you know, not pushing the ball downfield a ton and not throwing a lot of touchdowns and throwing too many interceptions, Stanford may well be under 500 yet again. Quarterback number three on this list. I'll tell you who that is after I remind you it's not okay to drive stone. If you're one of those people who thinks it's okay to drive stone, it's not. What's the worst that can happen? You end up driving below the speed limit? No big deal, right? Wrong. The truth is your reaction time slow way down when you're high. You not only put yourself in danger, but everyone around you. Talk about a buzzkill. Stop kidding yourself. It's not okay to drive high. If you've been using marijuana in any form, do not, I repeat, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI. This message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration. Quarterback number three, who could be the most impactful this year. Not the best, the most impactful. Very important distinction. Is Cam Ward up in Pullman for the Washington State Cougars and Jake Dickard in what will be his first full year as uh, the head man for Washington State. He's making the transition from FCS to FBS. Have guys done it before? Yes. Is it doable? Yes. Have other guys also tried to do it before and struggled? Also yes. Especially at the quarterback position, the hardest thing to do in all of sports. There's going to be a lot for him to process. And I think the biggest thing, and he'll get a real test in week two when Washington State goes to Madison and takes on a Wisconsin Badgers defense that is consistently one of the best in the country. What he's going to see and have to understand is you can't get away with as many things when the guys are faster than what you're accustomed to. You're not going to be faster in that defensive end who you're trying to outrun on the edge as often as you were at the FCS level. You're not going to be able to fit a ball in a tight window, make throws on the run, throw back across the field. There are a litany of things. I'm sure his coaches are talking to him about these sorts of uh, potential issues. Because any good coaching staff would be talking to him about that. But still, talking about it and doing it in practice is one thing. Doing it on the field is another. But remember, they brought him in to replace the freshman of the year in Jaden Delora, who's now down at Arizona and I think is just a, a solid quarterback. Right, Not elite, not a huge guy, not a huge arm. But gamer, I'm a fan, won games, did really well. They bring this guy in, Cam Ward, because they think he can be better. If he makes that transition well, and if he does it quickly and adapts to uh, the FBS game at, at a rapid rate and starts to really settle in and get things humming with that offense, that could be an 8-9 to nine win Washington State team. I've got them at 7, but if he really starts to pop and is elevating himself into that class of guys who I think are you know different going into the year, Caleb Williams, Cam Rising, and DTR, he puts himself in that category. Washington State becomes an even more dangerous team because they are much better defensively than you probably think. They've got a defensive head coach, and their defense has been sneaky solid and should be good again this year. Anchored by Ron Stone Jr., uh, the the edge player who's, I believe, preseason first-team All-Pac-12, if memory serves. 
that could be an eight to nine win team. I don't know about 10. That's a really tough thing to do. Few have done it up in Pullman, but that can be an eight to nine win team with one conference loss uh, already on the, the resume or one non-conference loss rather assuming they can't go in and get a win at Wisconsin. If they win that game, look out. I mean, that would be, they'd be cooking. But if you're telling me that's a team that could, you know, really have have a quarterback who's producing at a high level, even higher than Jaden Delore, yeah, they could win eight or nine games. So I think Cam Ward is uh, the most important quarterback, number three. He could even be number two. I I might, yeah, I I, I think I'd flip those. I think Cam Ward is number two. I think Penix is number one. I think Cam Ward is number two. And because, you know, Penix is number one because having him there versus not having him there could be the difference between Washington being a competitive team and a semi-non-competitive team like they were a season ago when they had well below average quarterback play. Maybe Dylan Morris just needs better coaching. I don't know how quickly Sam Hewitt will pick up a new offense, but he was definitely not ready when he started the Apple Cup in 2021. Just a lot of question marks there, and I'm not a fan of having more questions than answers seemingly at a, a position like quarterback. So uh, I'll put still Penix one, but Cam Ward two, McKee three, number four, Chance Nolan down at Oregon state. Another team that like the Cougs. Yeah, I could see him going five and seven this year, but I could also see him going nine and three. And, and I think that is on the table here, but consistency is, is the name of the game for Chance Nolan here and, and why he's so important because Oregon state can be a team that can really beat anybody in the pac 12. I mean, that is a 100% truth. They beat Utah a year ago, not like BYU and San Diego State did when Charlie Brewer was there and Utah hadn't quite found their footing. Oregon State beat Utah when the Utes were rolling. The only conference loss Utah had in 2021 was the Oregon State. That is a team that can beat anybody. They can also lose to anybody. Oregon State is the Purdue. I think Washington State falls in that category as well. They are the Purdue, Purdue of the Pac-12. They can have really high highs, and they can have some really low lows as a football program. But if Chance Nolan can be a little more consistent, he completed 64% of his throws a season ago. That's a good number to be at. He's got to do a better job taking care of the ball. 19 touchdowns to 10 interceptions, that has to improve. But if he can you know, be a little bit better on some third down situations, not have uh, so many air milled throws, which he had a couple of in, in 2021, just a, a little bit, then Oregon State could be a really dangerous team this year uh, if their defense can just be a little bit better than what it was in 2021. Uh, at number five here, I've got Bo Nix. Now, is the quarterback the biggest gap between Utah and Oregon, right? Was that the biggest gap? No. There was clearly a team-wide and schematical superiority in those two blowouts that, that Utah put on Oregon a season ago. And we'll see how much Dan Lanning is able to uh, to flip that script, so to speak. But there was definitely a gap. You watch Cam Rising, you watch Anthony Brown, you go, yeah, I'd rather have that guy, and it's not particularly close. And we know this Oregon roster has a bunch of talent on it. They've won the recruiting battle in the Pac-12 four years running now. Like They've got NFL caliber players on, on both sides of the ball. Not a ton, but a, a couple, which in the Pac-12 is usually good enough to to have a superior roster like I don't think anyone is doubting that they're one of the two or three best rosters in the conference but Bo Nix has to be able to do a couple things number one execute better on on certain third downs there were a number of situations a season ago Anthony Brown just wasn't good on third down dumped it off short too often and that was kind of a byproduct of the bigger problem 
his inability to consistently push the ball down the field. Was it an offensive philosophical approach? Guess we'll find out this year uh, to an extent. You do have a different quarterback and a different coaching staff, so it might not be directly comparable. But that was something Oregon did not do a lot of in in 2021. Can he come in and be better than Anthony Brown? Because if you can, then the ceiling on the Oregon football program goes up. But if he comes in and, you know, is reverting back to freshman or sophomore year Bo Nix rather than what we saw from him in 2021 when he had Auburn inside the top 20 and had a 6-3 and three record before he got hurt. Um, and then they went down and the offense struggled mightily. If he gets back to that sort of level, that's an upgrade. But if he's back to 2019-2020 Bo Nix, it's 50-50 about whether or not it'll be a big upgrade at that position. Um, but Oregon, I, I think, is better poised than than USC because they're not trying to do such a massive one-year turnaround to knock off Utah. I don't think they do it, but I think they're in the best position potentially to do it a- along with UCLA. Um, and, and Bo Nix could be someone who, who factors into that conversation very heavily. So just to recap, the most important quarterbacks in the Pac-12 this year who could make leaps that could help define their team season and how things just play out in the conference writ large. Michael Penix, number one up at Washington. Cam Ward, number two at Washington State. Tanner McKee at Stanford, number three. Chance Nolan, Oregon State, number four. And Bo Nix at Oregon, number five. They're your most important quarterbacks. It's not that I don't think Cam Rising has to play well or that Caleb Williams or DTR doesn't have to play well. But the floor for those guys is just higher, right? And then you look at other schools like a Cal or a Colorado, and I say, is it JT Shroud or Brendan Lewis? I don't know, but either one is not changing the trajectory of Colorado in a significant way this year. If Jack Plummer plays really well, do you feel that differently about the Cal Bears? Eh, not really. Jaden Delora is not going to be the sort of guy who's going to carry Arizona to an eight or nine win season. He's good. I like him. He can win games, but that team still needs a little bit of time. And then Emory Jones, I don't think has the sort of ceiling that, that could put him into this category to where if he plays super, super well, or nor does he have the team around him, right? Cause they got decimated the transfer portal. They brought in a lot of transfers as well down there in Tempe, but I don't think he has a sort of talent to where if he plays super, super well, it's, you know, the missing ingredient, right? That's the common theme with the guys on this list. Quarterback is a little bit of a missing ingredient. It may have been partially there a season ago, but if they take a step forward, it's going to have the most impact on those five teams. Washington, Washington State, uh, Stanford, Oregon State, and Oregon. Okay, someone asked a question, and you can do this too. You, Whoever you are, however you're listening or watching, you can get a question answered here on the show. Tweet the hashtag AskLOP12 or hop in the YouTube comments or you go to Twitter at Smalls underscore 55 or at LO underscore Pac-12. Shoot me a message. DM's wide open. Question answered here on the show. Zach Donner on a YouTube video said, amazing video. Well, thank you, Zach. I Amazing. As uh, Andy Sandberg used to say on SNL's Nick Cage, that's high praise. Okay, I promise to never do that again. No, I can't promise things that I uh, can't keep. Anyway, so amazing video. What do you think happened to Stanford? Early on, Shaw was killing it. I get that it's tough academically, but so is Northwestern, and Pat Fitzgerald won his division twice. Pat Fitzgerald also just beat Nebraska over in Ireland. Um, That was the most Nebraska game in the history of Nebraska games that Scott Frost has ever coached. Um, 
So there are a couple things that that's led to Stanford not being the powerhouse the last couple of years that they were when Shaw took over after Harbaugh departed for uh, the NFL with the 49ers. Couple of key stats to look for here. If Stanford's going to get back to what they were, they need to remember what they are. And they have to succeed at what they do best. In 2017, which is kind of like the the beginning of the downward trend, right? They were still good, but they were starting to move in that direction uh, away from the, the so-called glory days, I guess you could call them, of the early 2010s. Stanford ran for over 200 yards a game. But since that year, they haven't averaged more than 130 rushing yards a game, including in 2021, a bottoming out number of 88 rushing yards a game. Stanford. That's Stanford running for 88 yards a game. You can't win that way if you're the Cardinal. It's not how David Shaw knows how to win football games. It's not what he wants to do. And it's not what they're historically good at. The sorts of players they've typically recruited. I don't know if it's an offensive line issue or if it's a scheme issue, but fundamentally their downfall has been fueled by the fact that they have not been able to, to run their ball at the height of their powers. They were 175 plus uh, per game, if not over 200. And they also had a much better defense. They were last in the Pac-12 in defense. They had a putrid defense in 2021. And the hallmarks of what made them great, power running, controlling the clock, and playing good physical defense. Maybe you don't have the most speed in the world, but you're going to be physical up front and it's going to be tough to run the ball on them. That is the script that has done a complete flipping for the Cardinal under David Shaw. Now, what's led to that? There are a lot of factors at play. The fascinating part is recruiting hasn't really fallen off. You look at the recruiting classes and where they rank nationally in the early 2010s versus the last five years or so, as things have started to move downhill, it's been about the same, right? You have the occasional bounce back class or, or fallback class rather that, that's kind of in the 50s or so nationally, but typically they're right around the top 20, top 30 range. They've been getting a lot of players. Now, I don't know if their priorities have changed, if they've lost too many assistants, but they tend to promote from within. So it's not like they've had a different philosophy come in and, you know, shift the way that they want to play football. David Shaw still wants to win games the same way. They just haven't been able to, you know, Lance Anderson is the defensive coordinator. He's entering his ninth year. How do you explain a defense completely falling off? Is he not staying up to date with schemes? Is he not recruiting the right sorts of players anymore? Are they not getting the right sorts of players? All of those things could be factoring into it. My guess is, based on the the research I did to answer this particular question, it's been just kind of a little bit of everything. And also, before I go into the, the assistant coaches further, there could be an easy answer. Occam's razor could apply here in that the simplest explanation is the best one. It's really hard to win in college football at a high level for a long time. That's the simplest explanation. But it's also not that fun to just kind of jump there. I'm not going to answer it that way and then just sign off and say, see you next time. I'll say that later in the show. Lance Anderson, D.C., is entering his ninth year. Tavita Pritchard is entering his fifth year as the offensive coordinator and the 13th on staff. So like I said, when they lose coordinators, which is not super often, right? It's not like Alabama where they're replacing them. They're having, a, you know, they're churning out other head coaches year in and year out. 
But in the off chance that that has happened over the last decade or so, they've promoted from within, so the philosophies are all the same. This is Stanford. They like their own guys, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe they need an outside voice to come in and say, you got to play offense this way, or you got to you know, run these sorts of defensive sets or schemes. Maybe they're falling behind. But I think this year is going to be really telling for David Shaw and company, because if he's under 500 for a third straight full season, in my view, I don't know about Stanford's because they they have a different approach to these sorts of things because they like promoting the, the, the whole person and a certain type of person. And David Shaw, by all accounts, is like a perfect person, like he is a great guy and he is a great leader of men who generates the sorts of people that Stanford reputationally wants to turn out as a, as a football program. But if he's under 500 again, you got to fire him. That's three straight full seasons where you're under 500. That's not good enough. Not when you know what, what Stanford football is capable of being. You know that they're capable of being a top 10 team in the country. And if you're under 500 three years in a row, I, I, I think you got to jump ship. Whether or not they would do that, I don't know if they would see it as, uh, as you know, having reached the end of his run. Because, you know, that, that's another factor here. There's a lot that goes into it. It's a really loaded question, frankly. Um, every coach at some point sees the end, right? Nobody stays around forever. It doesn't happen. Nick Saban won't stay around forever. Could he leave on top? Yeah, he could. Do all coaches leave on top? Do all great coaches leave on top? Do all great players leave on top? No. They don't because sustaining excellence for a long time is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Here's another factor because I haven't given you enough, Zach, uh, that you want to consider. The transfer portal is not a strength for the Cardinal. And in fact, it's a pretty easy argument to say that it's a weakness because of, as I was talking about, why they might not get rid of David Shaw if he puts up another 3-9-4-8 season is he consistently produces the characters of people outside of football that Stanford is built upon. And what that means is in the transfer portal, Stanford's options are severely limited. They can recruit at a high level because they can go to a school, and for all the kids out there, of which there are a lot, that are seeing college football as a way to get their education paid for, the brand of Stanford is incredibly strong. It's an advantage in that sense. It's why they can recruit at a top 20 level nationally. They've done it before, typically you know, closer to top 30, but they can be in the top 20 pretty easily because they can get those sorts of kids. But if they already have them and Northwestern's got a bunch and Notre Dame has got a bunch, there's not that many left that are going to other schools. So the transfer portal has become a tool for teams to be able to bolster their rosters right now, right away. And in some ways, it's a drawback for some programs, right? Colorado's been hit hard by the portal. USC has completely reshaped their program in one offseason, utilizing the transfer portal first and foremost. They'll still recruit at a high level, but the portal is a weapon for them. But for Stanford, it's a disadvantage. And so what I wonder because they can't find the sorts of kids in the portal who fit what it means to be a Stanford graduate, if that's just going to be another weakness for them and something they have to account for. Because 
if you can't go get the sort of players you necessarily need to fill a hole in your roster the way that that team over there can or the way that all these other teams can, then you're at a competitive disadvantage in that sense. And it's not going to change. So whether or not David Shaw and company can overcome it remains to be seen. But, I mean, their transfer portal classes are basically non-existent. They just don't have the same pool of players that they're capable of drawing from. Cal's got the same sort of issue. And Northwestern, and I don't think Notre Dame has the exact same problem, but those sorts of academic powers have to have to consider that. I'll give you one last thing before I sign off, because I did, as you can see, think pretty long and hard about it. I wonder if they're having an identity crisis. And this is part of where... I think this season is going to be so telling as to how we can get a clear answer on this question on why they are not the Stanford of old, because college football is becoming more pass oriented and spread oriented, and they've gone after highly rated quarterback recruits. This ties in a little bit to what I was talking about earlier about the sorts of players they've been bringing in, right? They've got brought in guys like Tanner McKee, high four star Davis mill, a five star quarterback. And as a result, Perhaps their recruiting is not as focused in the trenches as it is trying to build out, you know, their skill position players because that's what everybody else is doing. But that's not how they play football. So if you're not recruiting the offensive and defensive lines first, the way they kind of did back in the day and the skill position second and build from the inside out, but that's how you're trying to win games, you're going to have a disconnect between your personnel and the strengths of the players on your team and how how you think football games should be won and how you know how to win them as David Shaw has many times. So maybe it's just outdated. Maybe it's a recruiting thing. Maybe the transfer portal is becoming uh, too much of a disadvantage, a hindrance. Maybe it's just hard to win. I think we're going to get answers to a lot of these questions this year, but the recruiting has stayed at a high level, but they didn't used to go after five-star quarterbacks, right? They won a Rose Bowl and a Pac-12, champion, a Pac-12 championship in Rose Bowl with Kevin Hogan. He's not a big-time quarterback. I think he was like a three-star guy. Like He's good. He's solid. But what did they have? A really good running back, a really good running game, and a good defense. And I think that's what they need to get back to. And I'm not saying you should shy away from highly touted quarterbacks, but if you're giving up a couple of four-star or maybe five-star linemen on either side to go after, you know, a receiver and a five-star QB. I think that's getting away from what Stanford knows how to do best with David Shaw as their head coach. Appreciate everyone listening. See you next time and have a wonderful rest of your day.